Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Dads, we're so grateful for you uh, setting some limits and not being like that, but that was pretty funny. (laughs) We honor you today, and we're so grateful. You play such a pivotal role, an irreplaceable role in our families, in our church, and in our world. Uh, In fact, you're so important that God actually made one of his Ten Commandments about you and moms, uh, and and the focus is on honoring you. It says, honor your father and your mother so that you may live uh, long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Dads, thank you. Some of you, honoring your dad is really easy. For some of you, it's challenging. I'm sorry that is the case. For some of you, it's difficult because your dad passed away today, so today is a difficult day. Some of you, you don't have a relationship with your dad anymore, and some of you may not even know your dad. Honor. Honor is an interesting, interesting word, rich in depth and meaning. In war, when we talk about honor, people want to be brave men and they want to be men of honor. In war, we we talk about one of the highest ideals of men wanting to honor women. We talk about honor in sports and good sportsmanship. We talk about honor as our reputation in business. If we don't honor our word and we're not good to the quality of our honor of our word, then, then, then our business doesn't go very well. And we often know, don't we, when honor is present and when it isn't. This past week, many people were commenting, and probably rightly so, about how the lack of honor in our relationships in America has led to this horrible shooting of the Republican leadership in Alexandria. On the other hand, this last week, I also experienced a really amazing moment of honor. Uh, We had a friend, 30-plus year friend, die. Uh, Actually, it was Wendy and John's wife were college classmates, wingmates in college. John was this person who expressed gracious honor toward everyone he met freely and regularly. And it was one of those times at a funeral when they did open mic. I usually don't recommend that, but this one worked really, really well. And people shared so many amazing things about him. Uh, One woman in particular had worked with John for 10 years uh, back in the late 90s. And uh, she talked about how his intelligence and his wisdom impacted her in her career on an ongoing basis. But more than that, she said the thing that impacted her most was how John loved his family. And particularly, she talked about one specific time she remembers John holding one of their infant sons. She concluded her remarks uh, at the funeral through tears, saying, I'm not a Christian. But if John's life is what it means to be a Christian, then I can understand why people would want to follow Jesus. It was a very moving moment. Today we conclude our series, Full Life and Full Heart, looking at David's story. And the purpose of this whole series has been to look at a man's life whom God said, of whom God said, uh, he's a man after my own heart. And, and a man who's renowned throughout the, the millennia and, and, and even today all around the world, people know this man because his life demonstrated living life to the full and living life with a passion of heart and meaning in life that I think we all admire and we can emulate in so many ways. As we conclude the series today, we're actually stopping in David's life before he ever even becomes king, before most of David's great achievements, before most of the rapid expansion of what we would describe as fullness of life and fullness of heart for him. Why? 
Because by the time we get to our story today, the foundation was already laid and tested and strengthened for David to become the great king and the great person God wanted him to be. And you see, that's not odd for God to do. He does the same thing in our lives as well. He prepares us in advance to face and succeed in his really good plan he has for our lives. God is so good and so patient as we saw last week. God works to set us up for success while testing on growing our character so that we can sustain and handle that success. One of the greatest lessons from David, which we brushed up against, but today we're going to focus on is this idea of honor. Honor was at the core of who God made David to be in the core of his success. Honor is at the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, honor is at the core of who God is to us as well. I mean, Jesus, we see him reinforcing this command to honor in many different ways repeatedly throughout the Gospels. We also see it in Peter and Paul's writings uh, as well. Paul in Romans 12, actually the verse that's on your candy, guys, that you got in, I'm going to read a different translation today, says this, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. See, Paul's almost kind of giving this locker room halftime talk, instructing the team to have fun competing to see who can outdo one another in honoring others the most. I hope today that we leave with a sense of God's grace and his goodness, with a passion to do just exactly what Romans 12 says, to try to outdo one another in honoring others. So for, for our text day, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 31 and 2 Samuel 1 today, but let, let's catch up on what's going on in David's life leading up to the point we're going to be at today. Last week, we left off at 1 Samuel 25. It was this turning point moment in David's life where he could have thrown it all away. He could have thrown his whole future away because of being provoked by a fool in a foolish moment. Shortly after that instance, Saul is again pursuing uh, David in the wilderness, now with 3,000 soldiers in the desert of Ziph. And, 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 and this, in this story, David and, and one of his mighty men sneak into Saul's camp at night while everybody's asleep. And he once again has an opportunity to kill Saul. But he knows it's not right. So instead, he just takes his spear and he takes Saul's water jug and they sneak back out of camp. They go across a ravine up a hill a couple hundred yards away. They wait till dawn and at dawn, they wake up all of Saul's camp. And again, David shows respect to Saul, letting him know that he's not against him, but he's for him. And Saul once again repents of his evil for trying to pursue David and kill him and he goes home. Yet David, after that, finds himself so despondent, so hopeless, believing that Saul will never, ever stop pursuing him. And he's just so tired of having to support his band of men on the run in the wilderness that David once again flees to the Philistine king Achish for sanctuary. While this results in Saul not continuing to pursue him, we see in the story the compromise of going to the enemy king sets a whole new set of ethical and safety dilemmas in play for David. For example, when the, when the Philistines go to war with the Israelites, King Achish says, David, will you join us and fight with us against your people? Puts him in this no-win situation. In the end, he actually doesn't have to fight because the nobles object to him being there saying he might turn against us and so they send him home. But when David gets home, he finds that his whole 
town, his old village that they had occupied has been burned to the ground. All of their goods and, and, and wealth and their wives and their children have been taken by these raiders. While David has gone rescuing his family and all of his goods, the Philistines actually go to war with the army of Israel and they defeat the army of Israel in resounding fashion. They kill Saul's three sons, including David's closest friend, Jonathan. And Saul in that battle is also mortally wounded and he's about to be captured and he ends up falling on his own sword trying to avoid being taken alive. As we pick up our text today, what we see is a messenger runs to David uh, with this news, likely thinking that David will be happy that Saul is dead. He was, in fact, he says to David, I, I was actually there. I saw him while he was, while he was still dying. And I was actually the one who put Saul out of his misery, killing him. Instead of rejoicing that David is now free to become king, what we actually see is David and his men mourn. They weep. They fast. And David writes a lament, and I want to read just a portion of it. It starts out in verse 19, and it says a gazelle. Now, you've got to understand, a lot of words in Hebrew are these pictured types of words. And, and what we're picturing here is this beautiful gazelle with a rack prancing on the heights that you would just admire and think is so beautiful. But a lot of other translators will also translate this, what the intent of that word is trying to say. And they'll say, your glory, instead of a gazelle, they'll say, your glory lies slain on your heights, Israel, how the mighty have fallen. Then the passage talks of their mighty exploits, picking up again in verse 23. I'm going to skip a few verses. And, and it says, Saul and Jonathan, in life, they were loved and admired. And in death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. Okay, what's up with that picture? What's wrong with that picture? I mean, David is speaking about Saul, not just Jonathan. I mean, it would make complete sense if he was talking about Jonathan. But no, David is talking about his love for Saul, about his admiration for Saul. He refers to him as the glory, the crowning pride of the nation, someone to be looked up to, admired, and celebrated. Where's the vengeance? Where's the self-justification? Where's the recounting of all the bitter times Saul's evil created difficulty and fear for him? David is weeping for the guy who tried to murder him 12 times, who defamed his name, who took his wife away forcibly and gave, him to somebody, gave her to somebody else just to spite him. David is talking about the guy who forced him to live in the wilderness on the run for more than seven years of his life. And yet David says, Saul in life was loved and admired. The guy who hated David David loved with all sincerity of heart. That is a level of honor that is unbelievably astonishing. To have such a settled heart in the midst of all those reasons for bitterness and out of that to be able to show love and respect and honor for the person who treated you so badly. 
You understand, this is not just a PR stunt for David saying the right leadership thing in the right moment to bring the healing for a nation. David doesn't actually become king for several more weeks and then only of Judah, and he doesn't actually become king of all Israel for another seven years. This is a genuine, heartfelt love and grief you're seeing him express here. And that kind of heart, that strength of heart, that level of honor is what God was looking for in a man who he could trust to do great things through. See, I think some of you, like me, have oftentimes longed for that kind of settledness of heart in relation to a family member who was or is so difficult or a boss who's been such a pain in the neck and it's just you want that, that tension, that bitterness, that anger to go away. You want a settledness in your heart. Let's use this picture of the end result of honor being worked out in David's life as a hallmark of his faith and character and leadership to explore what it looks like to honor God and how God wants us to honor others in this. So first, let's talk about it from this perspective. What honor is not? Honor is not the same as trust. Remember in 1 Samuel 26 where we talked about David grabbed the spear and went over on the hill and Saul repents of his evil and David in his pursuit of David? In that moment, uh, Saul actually also speaks to David and says, David, why don't you return home? Why don't you come home? But while David honors Saul, he will not trust him. David knows he's dealing with an unstable person, a person whose insecurity drives them, not their character. And in those instances, you need more than a promise before you begin trusting someone. It's okay to put some safety barriers up, whether that's physical distance like David did or whether it's deciding what you can and can't talk about or do with a person safely. So honoring does not mean the relationship has to be close and that you have to trust them and have this really intimate, close relationship. Honoring also doesn't mean that you won't confront them and that you simply stay silent or that you only ever say positive things. Remember Abigail we talked about last week? She honors David and her husband, and yet she also shoots really, really straight and clear about their sin, doesn't she? David honors Saul, but he still questions very directly, why are you pursuing me with all this evil intent? He confronts the evil. As you examine both David and Abigail uh, and their communication, you see them giving at every reasonable opportunity, though, the benefit of the doubt. Abigail approaches David in communication with that kind of a tone, assuming the best, assuming he's not actually going to follow through with his murderous intent that he's on. She acts and communicates with them with the most obvious uh, uh, benefit of the doubt. And, he, and you see David approach Saul with questions, asking why Saul is believing other people's bad reports about David. Now, it's, it's very possible other people were giving Saul bad untrue counsel about David. But we also know from the record of the text that Saul was directly, personally involved in coming up with those evil conclusions about David. And yet David gives him the benefit of the doubt. Even when David knows Saul is directly involved in that piece of sin, he respectfully points Saul to God in the confrontation. So let's, let's move on from there. What does it mean then to honor someone? 
Well, the Old Testament, New Testament words of honor that are translated honor communicate this idea of to esteem at the highest level possible. They're also kind of these picture-laden words that also mean to add weight to. So the latter idea of adding weight to is easiest to understand through thinking of a gold coin. Uh, the heavier the coin, the greater the value, right? To honor someone is to add weight to them. When we see the gold in them, God's good in them, we're valuing them in the way God values them. We're honoring them in the way God honors them. And biblically, honor comes out of your value to God. See, Saul was esteemed highly enough by God for, uh, for God to have chosen the prophet Samuel to anoint him as king. And even though Saul has fallen from that place of character and obedience that he's called to, David still understands that Saul carries that value before God. But there's an even more fundamental level where our value from God comes from. How many of you are baseball fans? Okay. Now, all of you, go ahead and put your put your. Now, all of you who are not baseball fans, how many of you know who Babe Ruth is? Not the candy bar or the baseball player. Okay. Experts believe that there were seven home run bats autographed by Babe Ruth. The first one was lost for decades. Nobody knew where it was. What had actually happened was Babe Ruth's agent uh, gave that bat away as a prize in a high school batting contest in 1924. And then they lost track of where it had been given away and nobody could figure it out. Time went on and decades later, this old former high school batting champion was now on his deathbed, deathbed with no living family relatives. And he gave this signed bat to the nurse who had taken care of him for the last year or so of his life, saying to her, you're the closest person in my life that I know and I love and I want to give you my most valuable possession. The nurse didn't know anything about baseball, uh, knew it was a special gift to this guy. It meant a lot to him. So for the next 18 years, she kept it in a safe place under her bed to honor the guy uh, who gave it to her. Uh, she came eventually on the hard times when she was trying to start her own business. She'd always dreamed of starting a restaurant. And she all of a sudden thought, I wonder if that bat is worth anything. So she took it to a collector's place, uh, put it in front of the guy and said, is this bat worth anything? And they, uh, the guy's eyes went just wide. And, and, and long story short, they got a whole bunch of experts. And she also had some other documentation. They were able to verify that this was indeed that first missing bat. The bat went to auction and it sold for $1.3 million. How's that? The woman opened a restaurant, but then she used the remaining money she didn't need on the restaurant to establish a foundation to serve the children that Babe Ruth had wanted to serve at the end of his life. When the reporter asked her, why did you put all that money into a foundation to help others? This is what she said. The bat was only valuable because Babe Ruth's name was on it. So the only reasonable thing I could do was something that would honor his life because he made it valuable. You see, just as Babe Ruth's signature made that bat valuable, to an infinitely greater extent, you are incredibly valuable because of the imprint of God's image in your life. Humans are the only part of God's creation created in his image, the pinnacle of his creation. It's his signature upon your life. You see, honoring someone starts with the value God has placed upon that person. But I think the problem for all of us in giving honor is, is we struggle over time. 
to give honor to those people, especially those people who have been so continually difficult or so continually evil? How do you continue to honor a parent, a friend, a boss, a husband and a wife who is so constantly critical, insensitive, hurtfully foolish, demeaning, mean, year after year after year? How do you, in that situation, become like David, honoring Saul, this insecure, jealous person who was pursuing him to kill him? Let's revisit for a moment the definition of honoring. When you honor, when you esteem a broken person, God is working through you to add weight to the magnificence that that person was originally created to be. When you honor someone, you add value to them. You put weight on the things God has done and wants to do through their lives, making them more substantive in their life. See, honor calls out the golden people. It doesn't focus on the dirt. But there's still more to your value in God as the basis for honor. So think about yourself for just a moment. Think about, your, think about yourself in the worst state of anger, the worst state of sin you have ever been in, a time when you felt like the greatest failure, like the greatest moron, like the moment you felt the greatest sense of hopelessness or the greatest sense of worthlessness you have ever felt about yourself. Remember that moment? Remember what that felt like? See, God loved you so much even in that moment. He saw such great worth in honoring and saving you that he himself came in Jesus to pay the ultimate price to offer salvation and restoration toward you even in that moment. This is your worth to God. And Jesus paid that price, the Bible tells us, willingly and joyfully. Think about Hebrews 12. It's speaking of Jesus and it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition for sinners so that you will not grow weary and you will not lose heart. That's such great encouragement that Jesus willingly, joyfully endured the cross because of the great worth he saw in making you, in saving you and restoring you and I. See, if you are a follower of Jesus then, the clear invitation for all of us is to see that same worth in other people just as Jesus sees it in us and just as Jesus sees it in them. To express that worth in the same honoring way to other people, even in their brokenness, so that like Jesus, you might participate in God's love and his plan to save and restore and heal as many people as possible. See, honor, it's not conditional on someone's behavior. It's not conditional on someone's level of achievement. See, so often we treat people as though they are in, as they are in their damaged state. So after 5, 10, 40 years with someone, it's so easy to just be focused all the time on the annoyances and the negatives. But honor, it's the spiritual habit of refusing to reduce people to the negatives of the dirt of who they are and instead choosing to see the gold in them now 
and beyond that, to believe in who God has made them to be, who God is intending to restore them to be long before they are ever even that in their life. See, we honor people because they were originally created very good by God for a good purpose. And even though sin has broken them, broken all of us in so many ways, God still in his grace has mercy planned, a good plan for each and every one of us. Honor is choosing to focus on and talk about the good people, good in people. See, that's the reason why the Bible says so much about gossip being so destructive gossiping is focusing on the dirt and it loves to mudsling, right? Uh, gossip, instead of honoring and go- uh, gossiping, finds personal joy and pride in sharing the negative and uncovering the negative and bringing justice because it makes you feel better about yourself by comparing yourselves to others. Gossiping loves to tell how someone else messed up, loves to put people in their place, Love loves to be suspicious of people and deal in innuendo rather than proven fact. And it chooses to assume the worst of people, to believe in the sin nature more than God's salvation plan for that person. See, when we play into Satan's hands by gossiping, we take weight away from people. We destroy them. We make growth harder for them to experience. We hold them down. And when we don't honor people, we sin and we propagate sin around us. On the other hand, when we honor people, it propels them forward into the promise God has already made about redeeming them. You see, honor releases love. It's one of the most practical ways that we express love because honor reveals God. It reveals who God is pointing out and who God is making them to be in the good work that he's doing in another person. Honor comes out of your value to God. But biblically, honor goes further still because it also helps us focus on the ongoing work of God. Honor expresses our trust in God's grace, in his kindness, and his commitment to save us, to save you, and to save me. See, David recognizes that as long as Saul is alive, he is the Lord's anointed. He recognizes God's good plan for Saul. And he knows that even though Saul is being disobedient, that God's grace and kindness is big enough that at any moment Saul could choose to repent and God would immediately step in and still fulfill as much of the promise as he possibly could in Saul's life and for the sake of the people of Israel through Saul's leadership. Saul has a choice in that. He can choose to accept that or not to. But David trusts God's grace and his patience to do all that God can do to bring Saul to repentance and change. See, I think a really good question that I find for myself, I think for all of us, when we're struggling to honor someone is this. How powerful and patient is God's grace and kindness and commitment to you and to the other person? How powerful is God's grace, his patience, and his kindness to us? See, God took a murderer, turned him into the Apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. God took Chuck Colson of Watergate infamy and used the prison sentence to bring him to faith in Jesus and turned it into the biggest prison ministry in the world today. Honor is a practical way of living out the mercy and grace of God 
of learning to be like Jesus. But again, we come back to that struggle where we have tension in these relationships that don't change. We have tension between these ideas of forgiveness and honor, and we struggle with that because we can so easily think that if we honor, and as part of that, if we forgive someone, that in so doing, we neglect to hold them accountable for their sin, and we let them off the hook, especially someone who has not repented to us yet. So the question often becomes, how can I honor someone who is so despicable? And and that question is especially, especially difficult when it becomes much more intimately personal when you have physical abuse or sexual abuse or murder or so many of the other more deeply wounding, personal, painful sin that happens in life. To hear that Jesus wants us to forgive and honor them, well, to a victim... That's almost offensive, isn't it, to hear? Allow me to suggest a way through that, something we don't focus on because it gets lost in the legitimate, deep, painful emotions of the offense that we've experienced. See, Jesus does indeed ask us to forgive and to honor. Hang with me for a second, because like we said before, that doesn't mean we do not confront or hold people accountable for their sin. See, your concern that forgiveness and honoring them releases them from accountability is actually not an accurate view of forgiveness or of honor. Your concern, I think, of that when you, when you struggle with that question is born out of what I, th- I think it's a wrong question. I think a better question that we would ask ourselves might be, what helps people repent and change the most? So for a moment, let's back away from those extreme painful examples. and Let's just talk about you and I right here, right now. When you come to faith in Jesus, you are forgiven completely. But you're not perfect, right? None of us are perfect. We all mess up. We still sin. In fact, the longer I live, the more I discover how deeply sin affects every part of me. It seems like I conquer one area of pride, and then, I, and then I'm just faced with another layer where pride just goes so deep. There's so many layers of sin that God wants to free us from. God doesn't, thankfully, require that we clean up everything right away to be loved and accepted and honored. I mean, if he did, that would crush us. It would be impossible for any of us to change everything all at once. No, the good news of Jesus is that he forgives us and he accepts us first. And then he patiently works with us over time to become more and more and more free and more and more like him. See, in Romans 2, Paul is actually leading us through a discussion about this reality of sin and the reality of the tendency to not honor and not forgive, but instead to judge people. And he says this, he says, or do you show contempt for the riches of his, Jesus, kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? See, it's God's kindness that leads us to accountability, to forgiveness, and change. His rules don't empower us to change. Paul actually talks about that in the context of the verse I just read. And they just let us know we're sinners, they, they, that we have failed. They give us this goal to grow toward, but it's the power of honoring, of kindness that leads us to turn around, to change, to grow. 
It's the power of kindness, the power of seeing in other in another person what God created and what God sees. It's the power of honoring by believing the good God has made them to be even more than they believe it themselves, about themselves in that moment. See, in our fear that if we forgive and honor someone who horribly violated us or offended us, that we then let them off the hook. It's actually the wrong focus. It's the wrong question. It's the wrong understanding of forgiveness and honoring. If we're following Jesus, the question is, what can help them and what can help me heal and change the most? Is shame going to bring accountability to change? to a person, holding the fence over them to make sure they feel the pain of it? Is that what's necessary to make them take it seriously to bring change? Paul actually says no. He says no. Shame doesn't lead to change. Shame crushes people. Shame drives them away from relationship, from community. It declares them as outcasts, as unloved, as unvalued. But honor... Forgiveness draws people into community by saying to them, I know everything about you. Do you get that? Notice the open acknowledgement of reality and the accountability to sin in that statement. I know everything about you and I forgive you and honor you and value you and love you. See, we talk all the time about the fact that none of us change apart from relationships. Honor invites people into the safety of relationship that allows them to safely open up and repent and change. Romans 12.10 reminds us of that. We read earlier that Christians and Christian community should be like no place else that it should be unparalleled in lavishly and mutually honoring one another. Come on, worship team. What would we see if we were the kind of community that tries to outdo honoring each other? What would we be willing to risk if we knew others believed in us and others saw the good and others encouraged the gold within us? So let's just take a moment and summarize. What does this look like in a community? What does it look like to have a culture of honor honor that we're wanting to see? Well, it might look like some of these bullet points. You don't have to write them down. We'll put this on Facebook if you want to see them later today. It says this. It says if we honor people, we we say their worth is based on being made in the image of God, not on what they do. Honor is focusing on grace, not, not, not... Not the works. You don't have to meet a certain set of expectations in order to earn honor. Honor means we look for the gold. We don't look for the dirt. Honor means the faults that people have are addressed personally and gently with gentle correction and then encouragement and and not not with gossip, not with spreading and talking to a lot of people. Honor means people are celebrated for who they are, not not judged for what they are not. Yet, honor means people are identified by the, by the promise of their future, not by their troubled past or one's mistakes. So here's the question. Who are you struggling to show honor to? That may be the very person God wants you today, this week, to show honor to so that you can demonstrate God's love to them in a tangible way.
How can we together as Quest, the people who are Quest, how can we have fun outdoing each other in honor and see what God could do through us to change our community? Would you stand with me? Lord, we just invite your presence and your spirit to come to us and that you would give us that, almost that competitive excitement to have fun competing with each other, to outdo each other in honor. To forgive, to speak the good over people, to believe your plan for people, even when we can see hardly any of it because of the damages and the ravages of sin. Lord, would you help us to be the people who work with the power of your spirit to trust your word that says it's your kindness. It's your kindness that leads people to change. It's your forgiveness, your extravagant love the way you honor us, the way you see worth in us because we have your imprint on us. Lord, you just fill us with your spirit and fill us with ability that's beyond ourselves to do that and to see all the good that you bring because of it. Would you come to us now and continue to come to us as we celebrate that and as we worship. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.